Pakistan. It's almost like the the geography into which Balochistan has been coerced mm. is not the the concept of national community that has been immersed yeah. into as compared with other nations that it's not geographically seen to be yeah. yeah. I think therefore actually I'm quite excited by this idea of Balochistan as a very disruptive notion then and Balochi mm. sounds like this identity which kind of keeps yeah. the, 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 the idea of nation state on its toes Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries with me, your host, Sahima Mansour Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories, so good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain. The list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial and they hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and really interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how we transform it. This episode, I'm joined by my friend Henain Brohi. She's a PhD candidate in applied linguistics at Newcastle University and her study explores sisterhood in Muslim women and the discourses of otherness in their everyday lived experiences. She currently runs a BME book club in Newcastle and she's interested in the use of language as a reflection of socio-cognitive ideologies and the politics of space from an intersectional lens. We explored the binary of Balochi and Pakistani, which may sound controversial and was a certainly interesting conversation. Okay. Uh, okay. So this week I am joined by Hanane Brohi. Uh alaikum, Hanane. Welcome, Sam. Um, so you're going to be joining me this week as a PhD candidate um, at Newcastle University doing applied yeah. linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and your uh, studies, I mean, I, I've come across you because we often, I feel like, interacting in similar circles, looking at, like, yeah. talking about Muslims, Muslim women and discourses yeah. about otherness, which apparently is what you study anyway, and the lived experiences yeah. of Muslim women. Yeah. Um, and you run a BAME book club in Newcastle, correct? Yeah. Yep, I do. Yeah. It's kind of affiliated with the university, but not officially. <laughs> okay, amazing. So I knew at some point that I wanted you to come on Breaking Binaries. Um, and we had a little chat beforehand about what, what binary you might break. Yeah. I feel like there was quite a, quite a range <laughs> of things that you could have talked about, um, which yeah. is fantastic. Um, but what we've settled on is quite interesting slash maybe controversial to some of those yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> and that binary <laughs> is uh, the binary of Pakistani and Balochi. Yeah. So... Prior to talking to you about this, mm. I haven't, hadn't really thought about this as a binary necessarily, mm. in the sense that I guess from my point of view, um, you know, I understand that Pakistan is a, a relatively new nation state and mm. you know, it's, it's a lot of its problems arise from the fact that it's trying to include all these uh, people who I guess would recognize different, more local um, or regional languages, yeah. cultures, ethnicities. Mm. Um, but then also I'm saying that as somebody who is Punjabi and I guess like always having the the um, hegemony of the nation mm-hmm. uh, um, in Pakistan. So I'm really yeah. intrigued by this and I'm, I'm going to, uh, sorry, I'm speaking at you, but I'm going to let you no, say fine. a little bit about, um, yeah. I guess why, why you wanted to explore this necessarily and, and whether these, why, or why these, these things are seen as oppositional or yeah. opposing identities? Yeah, so for me, it's kind of, um, it, it started off with my own experiences with um, 
I don't, I don't, I feel like oppression is a very strong word, but kind of marginalization, um, by Mm. Pakistani people or in Pakistani spaces. And that kind of led me to look into my own history a bit. And then Mm. I realized the historical trajectories of a post-colonial Balochistan and post-colonial Pakistan are quite different. Um, and uh, it's kind of, you know, interesting that you mentioned that with Pakistan being a relatively new um, state, a new construct, um, which was put together in 1947. Mm. Balochistan wasn't part of Pakistan until 1948 in uh, March. Okay, I didn't know that. That's super interesting. Yeah. So in that in, in that period of about seven to eight months, um, when the kind of the, the British empire retreated uh, from the region, uh, Balochistan had declared themselves as an independent state, but it later then got annexed um, into Pakistan. So for me, it kind of started off... Um, uh, personally, I've, I've kind of always, from when I was a really, really young child, I've always felt different. Um, and that's not, not just even, yeah, go on. So what uh, no, you I was going to say, say where did, yeah. no, just, uh, just to contextualize that for us. Yeah. Where, Cause you didn't grow up in the UK. No. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I, well, I was born in Ireland and then I grew up in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. So I was there for about nine years and I moved to the UK when I was 12. Right. Um, my both of my parents, um, their families are from Balochistan, but um, throughout the 1900s, they migrated to Sindh at different points within the century. I'm going to pause you there for a second, just as for, for yeah. our listeners. Geographically, yeah. uh, where can we find Balochistan? What is this place that you're referring to? So Balochistan is located uh, between Iran, Afghanistan, and um, let's just say for, for argument's sake right now, it's if we're to consider it as like kind of separate to Pakistan, it's like between Pakistan. Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan. Um, But obviously now with it kind of officially being within the borders of Pakistan, it it borders with Iran and um, Afghanistan. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So basically they kind of, they migrated to Sindh. So my parents, they grew up in Sindh. My mom spent some time in Balochistan before her family then moved to Sindh. Hmm. Um, So in, within my own family, my extended family, my mom's side, they all speak um, our mother tongue, which is Brahui. So that's uh, one of the many uh, Balochi languages that exist within Balochistan. That's super um, interesting. So w- yeah. just to, sorry, I, I just feel like I'm mm. going to jump in because um, yeah, yeah, this on. is really interesting. When you're talking about, all, you, you, there's a lot going on right now. We're talking about geographies, we're talking about Balochistan, mm. we're talking about Pakistan, mm. we're talking about, you know, you're saying potentially if, if we do want to see it as part of Pakistan and if we don't. And so mm. based on that, I'm just wondering your parents when they were growing up, you know, yeah. what, how would they have identified themselves or how do they identify themselves now? And does that feed into how you feel about this, mm-hmm. this kind of duality? So they do, they, they've got quite a conflicted identity um, <laughs> themselves. So they do affiliate themselves with Pakistan and they do see themselves as Pakistani. But then once you're within like a Pakistani context, that's when they start questioning um, the kind of the, the Punjabi and Urdu centrism. So what kind of context are you thinking about? Like, where have you, where has that happened for you? Like, where have you seen that? Um, I mean, in pretty much any family friend gathering, any, any kind of conversation surrounding um, Pakistan as a nation state and the sociopolitical situation mm. within it. Um, I think what they've experienced and I've kind of inherited that as well is the, the invisibilization of being a Balochi person, um, and being Pakistani Balochi. That's uh, interesting. What yeah. kind of like, just, just to help us kind of imagine what mm. kind of markers does that look like for you? Like when does, what, what are the moments that you're in your memories even that you remember kind of mm. thinking, oh, there's something else going on here. I'm not necessarily exactly like these other people. 
Well, I mean, for me, um, and I, I think I mentioned this to you previously as well, that like the, the I'm a linguist because mm. I, I have this deep interest in languages because of the fact that I speak a minority language. Mm. And um, that's been the kind of predominant basis for my own othering. And that's kind of led to my own realization that I am different. Mm. Um, so for me, it's kind of been that linguistic space of um, when you're in any kind of Pakistani space. So if you, you could, it could be at a community event. It could be at a wedding, you know, like an Eve gathering or any, um, yeah. artistic output from Pakistan. It, it'll predominantly be Urdu or Punjabi. Um, yeah. that's super Brahmi. interesting. Cause I feel mm. like even just thinking about, I mean, from my limited knowledge of like, you know, the, the conception of Pakistan as a nation state, there is mm. this real focus on, uh, language and this becomes such a contested issue for actually, mm. I think so many of the regional and, and, and even more local dialects that people speak and I think when yeah. Pakistan was formed it's something like 6% of the population actually spoke or, mm, and mm. yeah this was this was conceived to be the national language and so it's interesting yeah. to hear that it's kind of almost like that's language is the primary um like identifier upon which you first felt this this yeah. kind of clash yeah definitely and and it's it's been very it's very obvious in interpersonal um kind of scenarios where I'll be speaking to my mom in my my language and I'll I'll get stared at. Um mm. I'll get asked, oh, we are you speaking Sindhi? Because mm. if it's not Urdu, if it's not Punjabi, right. then it's either Sindhi or Pashto. So then I get mm. asked, like, are you are you speaking one of those languages? I'm like, no. And then it's like, oh, are you speaking Farsi? <laughs> like completely skipping over that entire region. So um, when you mentioned Balochistan, what how mm. are people is it like people who have just have are completely ignorant or what kind of response do you get? Um, it's it's a mixture. Like so I I'll either get some who are very intrigued and who genuinely want to know more. So then they'll, they'll ask me questions, um, about it. And, you know, they'll, they'll be really surprised about the fact that this entire language exists that they've never even heard of. Mm. Um, or then I get people who are just kind of like, just want to dodge any kind of interaction to do with it. Mm. So then they'll just kind of be like, Oh, okay. 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 And then the conversation just like, so ends like it's there. awkward. Like it's an awkward. Yeah. Identity. Yeah. Um, and then I, I have had like some people just kind of overtly say like, well, you're not real Pakistani. Cause like if, if Urdu is not my mother tongue, if Urdu is not the language I speak at home and neither is Punjabi, then it's kind of this, this, like people can't compute the fact that like you can be Pakistani and not be centered around those kind of linguistic forms of expression. That's really interesting. So what I'm hearing from you is that there's an erasure then of like Balochistan mm. as a, uh, as an ethnicity, I suppose, full stop. Because yeah. It's like you yeah. can't, you, so, so I guess the reason that you, you've kind of put these, these identities in a binary is that that is the way that it's been conceived to you is that you're either one or the yeah. other. You can't be, if you're Pakistani, you can't yeah. be Balochi. And if you're Balochi, then you're not Pakistani. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering from a historical point of view, um, mm. How much of that erasure is is present in kind of the history of of, of I don't know the the region because obviously we know mm. that 1947 there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of yeah you know we sure. also have uh, East Pakistan at the time that then later becomes Bangladesh and we have mm, we have partition mm. and we have even you know to this day so many fractures and you know the Punjab obviously being one that I'm more familiar with and yeah, you know, to this day yeah. we have the, the independence movement for Khalistan um, mm. so I'm just really interested from a historical point of view what, like has below the Balochi kind of struggle for recognition been something ever present as well? Yeah, for sure. So, um, it, as a province, it didn't actually even get its official status, um, until 1970. 
um, it just was a region in Pakistan. It wasn't actually classed as a province. Um, and Brahui, the language that I speak, um, to this day, it's not considered a provincial language, even though right. it's, it's one of the most common languages spoken in the region. Um, so what's the most common language spoken in the region? It would be Balochi. Right. Of course. Okay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Then, so that, so, so your language isn't actually recognized at, at all? It's it's considered a regional language, which is kind of seen as inferior to uh, right, provincial language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so what's happened is that um, Brahui as a language, and I would argue that the Balochi ethnicity as a whole has gone through benign neglect. So linguistically, that term basically is um, kind of a complete divestment and interest in a particular language mm-hmm. where um, there is no effort made to preserve or um, develop it, uh, but it's not also, it's not banned from use either. But what happens with that is that because languages go uh, go through a process of evolution, so they develop, they change over time. Mm. But when a language goes through benign neglect, it just slowly dies away. Mm. So um, UNESCO in 2009 officially declared uh, Brahui as um, an endangered language. Oh, wow. uh, so it's classed as vulnerable. Um, to endangerment. Um, and I would argue then that Balochistan as a whole, I feel, has gone through that because um, when the British uh, colonizers arrived in uh, Balochistan, which was in 1839, mm-hmm. um, it was essentially treated as kind of this um, kind of like a passageway right. into South and Central Asia. Geopolitically um, quite an interesting exactly, place to be, right? Exactly. And some historians say that it was their, their entry into that region was also kind of like an imperial rivalry against Russia. Mm-hmm. So they were afraid that they would arrive there first. And so the British arrived there. Um and so then what the British did was um, uh, some some at some point in the 1800s, it's unclear as to exactly when, they kind of drew arbitrary lines through this region of Balochistan and split it into three. Right. Um, so one was put into Iran, okay. a small portion was um, given to Afghanistan, and then right. one remained under, under British colonial ruling until uh, they retreated. And, Sorry, when um, did you say that was again? The, it's it's unclear as to oh, like exactly true. when, but mm-hmm. it's um, I think it's in the late 1800s because there were some treaties signed um, between the 1870s and 1880s um, when uh, Balochistan was given to Iran and Afghanistan. So when so people refer it, to Balochistan now, that they still yeah. also talking about a territory that then does span into the the, the kind of boundary of Afghanistan and Iran as well. It's, I think, I think it, it would probably differ according to who you ask, like mm. Balochi from which part. Mm. I know that Balochi Iranians do, um, they, they do declare themselves as Balochis. Yes. Um, but I think the strip that's kind of been given to Afghanistan, it's a bit obscure because um, it's a much smaller portion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't say for sure because I haven't read into that in mm-hmm. enough detail to make a kind of a definitive statement. No, that's super interesting because I think in, in all these borders, um, particularly mm. that northern border of Pakistan in, in general, yeah. there's so much slippage and kind of, you know, even even physically, like where, you know, when do you stop being in Pakistan and start being in Afghanistan? And with so many yeah. refugees from Afghanistan being in exactly, Pakistan, you know, that's, that's a really mm. uh, interesting... I think it throws up questions more generally about the nation state and how yeah. you define, you know, where one ends and the other begins, where, where, especially where ethnicities and, and languages are so, so tied together. 
Exactly, exactly. And so, like, it's interesting you say that because there is a part of uh, Balochistan, um, in, it's called Gwadar, Gwadar Port, which mm-hmm. is the coastal region that extends from mm. um, the eastern Balochi district of, called um, Awaran, I think, mm. um, to the Iranian border to the west. Right. And that was owned by, literally owned by Oman. So it was literally considered oh, wow. a part of Oman. Yeah. That's really um, and the story of how it was kind of handed over was that um, basically the colonial <laughs> officers at the time, in the early 1900s, they were basically saying that uh, it was given to um, Oman for free. But there was a tribal leader who um, wrote an account uh, in his diary that was kind of passed down to his son, where he kind of narrated the story that um, that. The, uh, in 1783, this prince Said bin Ahmed um, of Oman, well, Muscat at the time, succeeded, succeeded, uh, sorry, <laughs> succeeded to the throne. Mm. Um, and his brother Sultan bin Ahmed um, sought military assistance from the chieftain of Kalat. So Kalat is a region in Balochistan, right. and and it used to be a princely state. Um, so he sought um, assistance from them, presumably for either protection or to take the throne um, in Muscat hmm. uh, to basically overthrow his brother. Um, so the chieftain refused uh, to accompany the prince, but instead he um, lent him Gwadar as a place of refuge <laughs> on the condition that when it's safe for him to return to Muscat, that he gives Gwadar back. But he didn't do that. Um, so in 1797, um, he became ruler of Muscat. Wow. And um, then eventually, the British, uh, when they arrived, they intervened and they officially declared Gwadar as a part of Oman. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so it wasn't until 1958 that Pakistan literally bought that piece of land back for three million pounds. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Wow. They, wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is a super yeah. contested uh, space, which is, uh, on the one hand, and I'm really, that's really interesting to me that mm. it's so contested and hi- sound, sounds highly political in a geopolitical sense, but then also yeah. fully erased in this other way that is like. Completely, completely erased. That's a really yeah. interesting contradiction to me. Yeah. And also to add to that erasure, so when Oman owned Gwadar, they used it for slave trade. So mm. they would enslave people from Tanzania, wow. transport them um, through Gwadar to then disperse them around. South, other places in South and Central Asia. So, um, so there are descendants of free uh, slaves, uh, freed slaves who live near um, Gwadar. And so there's this district called Makran, wow. which is basically known for um, the, the descendants of slaves. And um, there's a lot of discrimination generally in Pakistan mm. that goes on against them so they're not they're not always seen as Balochi by like non-Balochis they're kind of seen as like you know discriminated against for their um, their history that's really interesting because in a way I guess what I kind of liked about this binary um, at all, like breaking mm. this binary down is that by recognizing a uh, Balochi identity, you, mm. you disrupt the essentialization of Pakistan and the essentialization yeah. of Pakistani identity. But then you, yeah. I, I guess what's interesting is there's always ways that we re-essentialize ourselves. And I guess mm-hmm. what you just said there, that there's then this, this othering of those who come from a Tanzanian heritage, mm-hmm. so a, a long ancestral yeah. lineage, they therefore are kind of placed outside of what counts as Balochiness, I guess. 
So that happens more so outside of Balochistan, but generally within, I mean, there is obviously discrimination that happens within Balochistan, mm. but by and large, um, to have a Baloch, to mm. be counted as Balochi, uh, they overlook um, religious and uh, quote unquote ethnic and racial differences. Um, so it's sorry, kind of so, so. within the boundaries of Balochistan, like Balochi people in general. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So to be Balochi isn't that strongly tied to an ethnicity because there's so much diversity there. That's really interesting. So what do people tie it to then internally? So it's a lot of it is um, linked again to language. So right. if you speak a language that's tied to, historically tied to that region of Balochistan mm. and you're engaged within um, your local sociopolitical environment mm. and, and you're basically... I don't like using the word assimilated, but like mm. a lot of the papers I've read where historians say that that kind of assimilation, yeah. you, you can, you can adopt that, um, Balochi identity. When I say adopt, I don't but mean no, that like you weren't prior, a Balochi prior to that, but as in like, you kind this of. This is super interesting because I think, mm. uh, I, I also, it raises for me the question of like, where do we draw the line between, um, yeah, because ethnicity and language are so closely connected, right? Like, often, 100%, 100%. Like, what is ethnicity apart from? I mean, because if if ethnicity historically has been differentiated from race, because race is often constructed in the kind of like the Enlightenment period, and it mm, attributes mm. certain traits and behaviors uh, exactly. to, to physical characteristics. I suppose ethnicity mm. is then defined often as different to that in the sense that it's these markers that are more. Uh, to do with like yeah linguistic and cultural uh, yeah. norms and and, sh- and heritages yeah, so in that yeah. sense that's really interesting that whilst the, the, it sounds like what you're saying is within Balochistan people mm. the key marker of a shared a shared ethnicity shared culture is mm. language but then there's yeah. also there's huge variance in language as well right is it 100% yeah <laughs> definitely super interesting and complicated yeah very complicated and like in terms of the cultural aspect that you're talking about so there's there's um a dance called the lira dance hmm. uh, from um east africa that's now considered to be part of balochi culture wow and so it's it really interesting because i'm just looking mm. I'm, I'm, the whole time you've been talking i have i have google maps out which i, I recommend to anyone listening yeah. because it's really helpful because you can really see how this yeah. is a, uh, just a really interesting physically space to be in and kind yeah. of the junction between sort of many continents I guess mm, mm, um, definitely yeah. yeah and that's interesting what you're saying so that dance is something that is present today to this day yeah yeah it is yeah yeah uh, predominantly in, in Makran um, but it's very much seen as part of the of Balochi culture um, mm. and there is, I've, I've read a paper on different healing practices that have been um, brought over by the countries on on the borders of quote-unquote Balochistan Mm. um, and also some healing practices that were brought over by um, the previous people who were enslaved um, and then passed down generationally and and they're very much kind of seen as um, to be part of Balochi healing practices. This is Um, really interesting. Yeah. I think also what I mean basically what you're saying whilst it is complicated um, it's not actually unique in the sense that you know this is yeah a, you find i guess so many parallels across the world um and even like just within south asia i guess yeah um, yeah of like erased populations and ethnicities that mm. don't make se- i suppose they don't make sense to the nation state and yeah i'm even just thinking like you know the very uh 
obvious case today of you mm. know, um, Modi's India kind of rewriting a history of, yeah. of India that erases, you know, the entire Muslim history um, yeah. of the subcontinent. And I guess it's just it, the thing that I, I'm kind of thinking when I'm just listening to you is that in usually in these binaries, what I, you know, I'll say is like, okay, so, you know, what is the binary said to be? So what is Balochi said to be? And what is Pakistani said to be? But I guess actually this, in the, in this particular instance, what Pakistani is said to be is also contested, right? By, by, by other, because it's, there's, there's other provinces and regions that also mm. have very strong claims to um, yeah. not wanting to be assimilated into that kind of Punjabi hegemony. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just to kind of like give you a bit of an idea as to how much diversity there is in Pakistan. So like, you know, I mentioned about how um, Brahui is uh, considered an endangered language in UNESCO. Mm. Can you guess how many other Pakistani languages are at risk of endangerment? Oh God, this can be really sad. Um, oh my gosh. I don't know. Maybe like, I don't even know how many languages that, that are spoken <laughs> in Pakistan. Uh, let's say uh, 25. Oh, you're close. It's oh, really? 27. Wow. 27. Yeah. That's and I, so honestly, sad. I don't even know all of them. That's I don't so even so know sad. which ones. I know it's, it is, it's really sad. And I, you know, this whole, um, this concept of pushing that, like that Urdu centrism, that's mm. very much, you know, I, I would say particularly within Pakistan, Urdu centrism is probably um, kind of overrides Punjabi centrism to a certain degree because yeah. it is the national language. Yeah. And to and me, it's a class thing, like in, in my experience, anyway. It's such yeah. a, you know, the literary elite is kind of what, what you, know, exactly. you want to be able to access if you want to be speaking Urdu. Exactly. So um, I, to me, it very much mirrors the the kind of British empire and, and the pushing of English as, you know, the mm. national language and um, not even just within the boundaries of the UK, but, mm. you know, for English to become a lingua franca, the, the, that it, language was used basically as a driver for that imperialist colonial agenda. Mm. And, and I kind of see that happening in Pakistan. And so it's really sad to me that like we've inherited certain colonial practices. Absolutely. Linguistic imperialism. hundred mm. uh, yeah. percent. Actually that, that makes me just uh, also want to ask you about um, your experiences growing up in, in Riyadh and then in yeah. the UK. Well, I mean, how, yeah. cause I'm assuming that like what counts as Pakistani in those contexts mm. is also quite different. Uh, totally. Because like, so just kind of going back, I was telling you about, my experiences even like within sure. my own family mm -hmm. so like my mom's side of the family they all speak Brahui my dad's side of the family because they'd been in since for um I think mm. I think it was my grandparents or or my great-grandparents on my dad's side who moved to Sindh mm. um they all speak Urdu or Sindhi very interesting and so my dad didn't know how to speak Brahui until he married my mom and he asked her to teach him the language because he wanted his kids to oh, learn Brahui like yeah it's a lot of respect for that mm. um and so i like me and my brother we grew up speaking Brahui with their mom we learned urdu because they were you know like everyone around us outside of our family within uh, when we lived in Riyadh, they all spoke urdu and then our extended family my dad's side spoke urdu but even within that setting like within my own family whenever me and my mom would speak Brahui, then my family would my family members would stare mm. at me okay and um I would then, when I'd speak Urdu, I'd speak it with an accent. And so I'd get laughed at. Um, I can, 
there are countless number of occasions where I'd said something in Urdu and one of my aunts would like call, literally call the entire family into the room and say like, oh, look, she just said this and like kind of laugh at me. And it was definitely like a kind of, you know, uh, mocking sort of like, this is a embarrassing kind of. The the thing is like, they would say, oh, it's endearing to hear you speak Urdu. But the thing is, you know, that's not really a way to encourage someone to, you know, and, and to be like, so to me, humor can be, humor is such an interesting thing. It's yeah. such an interesting tool because, um, it can work to confront certain forms of oppression mm. and discrimination, but it can also work to reinforce it. So basically what they were laughing at is the fact that like my accent in Urdu is not quote unquote correct. Right, right. And so I then have to learn the correct accent of Urdu to then speak it properly. So then there's that kind of underlying discrimination. Definitely reinforces that discrimination. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I I guess also I I feel like humor is often used to silence certain things. So for you to then dispute that as 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 kind of you know uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh come on, we're just kidding around. Like exactly. Which you know technically they are, but it's as you say, it's 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 not necessarily in the intent, but in the Mm. repercussions. Exactly. Um, And then. And in terms of like when I was in Riyadh growing up, like my encounter with Pakistanis would usually be like through family friends. And um, again, it's just the same story of, you know, just kind of being stared at Mm. uh, the same questions. Is it Sindhi? Is it Pashto? And like I was speaking to my dad about it um, a couple of weeks ago and he said that like he there was a point where he kind of got a bit annoyed. And, um, when someone asked him if he was speaking Sindhi, he just turned around and said, you should be ashamed of yourself that you don't even know about your own country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, um, that's a good response to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, I, what well, I kind of internalized then when I was young in, in Saudi was that mm-hmm. like, um, I kind of need to invisibilize myself as a Baluchi mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So then when I moved to the UK, I, would not even expose the fact that I was Balochi mm-hmm. unless it kind of came out where someone heard me speaking to my mom or if someone would like blatantly ask me like, Oh, where are you from? And then I would tell them. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, it would be kind of like the same story. And, um, I remember there was this one occasion where, uh, you know, a, a family friend, um, we were just kind of talking about like languages and stuff. And she was questioning me like, Oh, you, so you can't speak Punjabi. Um, Oh, you like, you don't speak Urdu at home. No. And then they're like, okay, so when you go to Pakistan, like, where do you go? Mm. And, um, I'd say, Oh, I go to Hyderabad and Sindh. Mm. And she'd be like, okay, what about like Lahore? And I'm like, no, mm. I've never been to Lahore. And then she was like, well, you're not a real Pakistani, are you? Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And then what's really funny is that like, if there would be any kind of cricket match going on where mm. Pakistan would be playing there would be this expectation for me to show solidarity and, and like patriotism towards Pakistan and I'm like you can't on the one hand like marginalize me and yeah you're not Pakistani so, but also you are you have to be in this yeah. instance yeah exactly um, that's really interesting because I'm I'm uh, did you ever sense uh, like a <laughs> In terms of like who counts as Pakistani in those two different mm. contexts, was that ever different? Because I've, I'm just thinking aloud because in my experience, you know, the UK, the UK's Pakistani diaspora is generally like the majority, at least, are from very specifically similar regions and, yeah. you know, North yeah. Pakistan, um, like Kashmir, uh, Mirpur, like the, those kind of areas. And then you have yeah. I guess, also a more middle class Pakistani diaspora from like Karachi and, and these kinds of mm. places. But I'm wondering if that if that had any impact on the ways that you felt being Balochi was received? Yeah, hundred percent. I think, um, 
I kind of wasn't really counted as, so, um, you know how there's kind of like the caste system generally in, in within Pakistan, um, Balochistan doesn't have that because it was, it, it's basically comprised of tribes. Hmm. And so, um, I, it's kind of, again, it's that invisibilization where like, um, I, I can't say anything that anyone yeah, like, wanted exactly. to impose on you. Yeah, so I can't say that it was necessarily a class thing within a British context, but I wasn't really considered like, um, how do I put it? Um, well, you kind of not, an anomaly, you're not making sense. Yeah, yes. Even I think that question that you said that somebody asked you, I mean, that's such a classic question of like, where do you go when you're in Pakistan? Like, what, you know, mm, what do you speak? Mm-hmm. And I think those questions are really getting at something else. They often feel... Uh, I would always uh, say menacing in the sense that I yeah. feel like they're very, their questions aim geared at trying to categorize you um, exactly. into more or less authentic, but also into, you know, uh, I suppose how palatable, how acceptable, um, mm. how respectable. And we know yeah. obviously that in South Asia, there are all these other lines cutting across, you know, shadism, casteism, classism, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, lit- literacy. Um, uh, and I think I, I'm, yeah, it's just interesting to think about whether also because Balochistan is erased, whether that mm. or you, you know what you were saying before when people are kind of awkward and they just don't want to talk about it. It's almost yeah, like yeah, you yeah. kind of disrupt the logics of the, na- the nation's yeah. boundary because you don't make, you're not adhering to necessarily the rules of, of whether you are yeah. or aren't something. You, in, a sense, yeah. in a sense, you break the, by breaking mm. the binary of like, I'm not one or the other, I'm actually yeah. both. Um, exactly. So, yeah, that kind of that discounting of, of my identity as Pakistani would happen. And I remember there was this one occasion where I was at a friend's birthday party and um, I got asked where I was from. And, you know, the, this conversation goes, oh, Pakistan, we're in Pakistan, oh, Balochistan. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of assume that I don't understand Urdu. Mm. And so they started talking about me in Urdu. Ooh, never good, <laughs> never good uh, things to do. Exactly. And so, and then like, you know, I kind of let it go on and go on and go on. And mm. then I eventually like, they said something and then I responded to their uh, question and they felt filthy. so embarrassed. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just really, yeah. what, what I found striking is that in that moment, they didn't know who I was. Mm. They didn't know about my family background. Mm. They didn't know about my you know, what I'm doing with my life, nothing. Mm -hmm. All they knew was that I'm from Balochistan and they thought that that was, that kind of warranted that sort of behavior to talk about someone, to mock them and stuff. Yeah, Um, Uh, you're automatically marginalized in in that, just by having that identity. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I guess something that I'm just thinking about in this whole conversation is, you know, this, this binary or not being about, I mean, cause on, I also actually maybe a question for you is, mm-hmm. and you don't have to answer this and, and maybe, maybe actually, you know, disrupt the question itself, but you know, would, what identity would you like to be able to say and not, you know, is it that you want to be able to say I'm mm-hmm. Balochi and Pakistani or is it that you want to say, actually, I want Balochistan? Cause is there like a, I'm presuming there is probably some sort of independence movement as well within Balochistan. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge, um, separatist movement that kind of, so, um, there's a Balochi nationalist movement, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, gained strength when, uh, the British colonizers arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was at the point at which it, uh, Balochistan was annexed into Pakistan that it really gained momentum um, and it's been intensifying over the years. And so it's very conflicting as someone who's a 
Baluchi diaspora to kind of mm. commentate on um, the kind of the, the parameters of identity and like, mm. you know, should it be Baluchi, should it be Baksani or to hyphenate? Mm. Um, I think it's really difficult and it's probably a contextual matter. Yeah. Um, when it comes to like filling in forms here, for example, mm. <laughs> I always have to tick Baksani because there's no other, you know, like no other option. No. Um, I've been in the UK for about 15 years now and yeah. but I, I don't know if I can say Pakistani British right, right. or like sorry British Pakistani so I just kind of take Pakistani right. um but over the years I have really questioned um whether or not I should identify as Pakistani um and so I kind of I don't dissociate myself from Pakistan because mm. my parents are very strongly affiliated to it. Okay, um, and I, you know, I spent most of my summers from my childhood um, in Pakistan and Sin. Mm. Uh, so I can't completely divorce myself from the nation. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I don't uh, fully affiliate with Pakistani spaces either. Mm. That's um, interesting. I think also because... I mean, I guess the irony of, of, of all nation states, but that you see particularly in a lot of post-colonial nation states is yeah. that the the necessity for it to make sense to itself requires yeah. a lot of coercion. And so we know that, mm. you know, the majority of Pakistani state budget is spent on the military. And we know that mm, that military mm, mm, mm. has a really big job in, in holding together these provinces and regions that are, yeah. are very prone to wanting to be recognized separately. You know, it's not just um, yeah, this yeah. Is not like uh, unique to uh, Balochistan, I guess. This is something that we yeah. see all across um, Pakistan. And um, I guess I'm wondering about, uh, you know, whether and what the kind of end end point is in these struggles, right? Like what is the the solution? Because I remember there's a really um, uh, amazing uh, scholar um, mm-hmm. that I, I had the privilege to hear once, um, Dr. Santiago Slabodsky. And he mm. was talking about the sort of the logic of the nation state is inherently genocidal. So what he meant yeah. by that is that really for a nation to make, you know, the, 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 for the nation mm. to make sense, you, you basically putting to, together a collective of people and, and, yeah. you, and you're trying to give them something that bonds them. And so, you know, you see that in, mm. in Europe in the 1800s with, you know, Germany, Italy, the early examples, I think, where they say, oh, well, these 14 provinces actually all come together and, and this is Germany. And then mm. obviously mm. you see that exported into, uh, you know, the, the world that is colonized. Well, the, this area is now India, this area is now Pakistan, etc. Yeah. And I guess his argument, which I'm really interested in thinking about forwardly, is that he kind of says that when, whenever you create a boundary like that, that you're trying to define mm. something internally, the only mm. way you can do it is by saying what it is not. So you have to say, you know, what Pakistanis are not are, yeah. um, you know, Indians of what Pakistanis mm. are not is, and, and we see that on all sides, right? But yeah. he says that this therefore creates this um, problem for those who are minorities within the nation. So those who maybe don't share all the characteristics that the nation is said to be. So for yeah. example, I think Britain is a really great example of this. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. today, and, and it's interesting because I suppose you face this doubly so because it's like on, yeah. you're, you're excluded from a definition of the nation because you're being told you belong to another nation, which you are then told you don't belong to. Um, yeah. And I guess um, just to, to make the point that uh, you know, in Britain, it's kind of like 
uh, I think the problem that we face today is that Britishness cannot be defined beyond whiteness. And uh, mm. this is kind of the crux of a lot of problems. So, you know, we talk about British values and they're something that kind of are assumed to be inherent to white people in this country, but mm. then ethnic minorities kind of need to cultivate them and learn them. Mm, mm, and mm. I think that's actually a really good example of how, if you have this minority population that are always kind of precarious in the extent to which we see them as belonging, yeah. then there's always the possibility to kick them out, right? There's always the possibility yeah. that they don't belong here. Um, yeah. And so what uh, Santiago Slobodsky says is that um, you are get, basically have you find this conditional promise in all um, nation states where they basically say, um, assimilate or we'll kick you out. Mm. But actually, we will never believe you to have assimilated because of your otherness. Therefore, yeah. we will kick you out anyway. And so yeah. he calls yeah. this genocidal conditions and genocidal cultures. And he so mm. he uses the example of the Holocaust and he uses the example of, um, you know, c- colonial genocides. Um, mm. But I, I wonder, just thinking to the future, you know, you're talking about the specific example of Balochistan, but realistically what I'm seeing there is the conditional promise that is even offered to you as a diaspora, which is, um, are you one of us, are you Pakistani? Mm. Um, and if you're not, because you're not, uh, um, fulfilling these conditions that we're offering that you should speak Urdu, that you should visit yeah. these places, then mm. we're not going to see you as belonging anyway. Yeah. And I think that's a really difficult conundrum. And I, I don't know, what, mm. do, do you see, what is the sort of end of this kind of logic, where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? I mean, how do you feel at the end of these conversations or even mm. just through your life moving through these questions? Yeah, um, that's a really good question because I don't really think that there will ever be an end. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think that um, I would personally, for example, thinking of in the future of how I would teach my children about, you know, yeah. my heritage, yeah. their heritage. Um, I would, I would tell them the history of, of, of Balochistan, of Pakistan. And I would, I would try to encourage them not to define themselves by others, the margins that others put up mm. to kind of how to categorize yourself. But it's very difficult to do that when you see, um, kind of the, the, nation state of Pakistan exploiting Baluchi people and Baluchi mm. land, mm. um, marginalizing that entire space. And then you see that kind of marginalization reflected within diasporic right. spaces. Right. Um, I feel that we will never really um, meet the conditionalities of being a Pakistani within diasporic spaces unless um, the Urdu and Punjabi centrism is confronted within mm-hmm. the space. Um, yeah, and I wonder also if, um, because I think one, one one thing that I think is quite difficult and problematic, but I, that I also, I guess, I'm slightly empathetic about is that mm. it, amongst diasporas, I think of all uh, kind of post-colonial nations, um, yeah. there's almost a re-essentializing of what that na- nation's identity is. Yeah. That comes from kind of the fact that you are... Uh, I, th- I think particularly for first generation of migrants, you know, you, you're, you're in this new context where yeah, basically all yeah. you have to hold on to is where you come from, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think yeah. that that then actually leads to this re-essentialization of what that place is. And it's like, we recognize others from that place because we all mm. share X, Y, Z, and it becomes very um, rigid. So yeah. in, in the context of, you know, Pakistan diaspora in Britain, I almost think there's a, maybe, I wonder if I suppose it's a question, there is more essentialization of what Pakistaniness is mm-hmm. here than even in Pakistan. And I don't know, that's just a speculation because I wonder yeah. whether it's more, almost seen as more important to essentialize what Pakistani is here than mm. there where you, you, you are in Pakistan. So it's yeah. less necessary. I don't know, maybe it's less necessary. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely see that because when I think of my, uh, the kind of 
diasporic, if one could call it that, family outside of Balochistan that are settled in Sin. They don't really have similar, you know, identity crises or questions that I've probably gone through in my life. Mm. And I think it's because there is this this need to reassert one's identity as Pakistani within diasporic spaces outside of those borders of Pakistan. Mm. Um, probably also because of the discrimination and oppression that happens mm. as post-colonial bodies within, um, you know, for example, Britain. Yeah. And um, I, I think for me, I've kind of, I've very much accepted that I have a fluid identity because um, just to kind of give you an example, the food that I eat at home is kind of different to um, most Pakistani foods. Uh, so for example, my mom makes this dish called Kabuli Palau. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically an Afghan Palau that was, that's been passed on through Balochistan and it's like considered the Balochi dish as well. Mm. You'll never see that on a menu in an Indian or Pakistani restaurant. Um, and so I remember once a few years ago, I went to an Afghan restaurant. I'd never been to one before and I literally felt like I was eating my mom's food. Oh, very interesting. And so it's so, um, and I was like, okay. Wow. So like my, literally the, the kind of the palate of my tongue mm. is more attuned to Afghan food than it is mm. to Pakistani food over here in the UK. And so I've kind of now, um, I see myself as Desi more than, really, that's so I'd interesting. say, yeah. And also I think, but how um, so what does Desi provide for you that, that the, other things don't? Mm, the reason is because it's it's a bit of an obscure term. It's mm. it's kind of an umbrella term. It's difficult to kind of pick and choose where they see the starts and where it ends. And I can see how that can be oppressive in certain ways and it can be weaponized to homogenize what it is to right. be someone who is quote unquote Desi. Mm. But for someone like me who's so marginalized mm. within, you know, that Pakistani diasporic space, mm. it works to reassert my the flexibility and fluidity of my identity than whether I, I'm classed as Balochi or Balochi Pakistani or just Pakistani. That's really interesting. Cause I, I, mm. I, I, I yeah, again, I'm just speculating out loud, but I wonder if, cause I'm thinking in that, in that context of say that the food thing for a second, um, yeah. almost by, by the fact of having the food that you have, that you say, you know, mainstream Pakistani restaurant wouldn't have, mm. uh, by then defining Balochiness as Pakistani and having mm. that food, you actually disrupt the hegemonic definition of Pakistan, right? Because you exactly. say, well, this, this too is Pakistani, right? Yeah. Which in a sense yeah. is what, you know, I think uh, is quite powerful mm. when when people say that, you know, whether it's people here saying, you know, we're British too or whatever it is. Yeah. And then on the other hand, the other side of that is almost, it creates this sense that your legitimacy comes through belonging to the nation state. And it's this idea that, yeah. oh, my food is now, um, you know, good or, or, or legitimate because I, I see it in, in Afghanistan and it's like, oh, this yeah. Afghani restaurant will now recognize me as yeah. legitimate. So in a exactly. way, I can see why, I don't know, but both things, I almost think both things can be true that by recognizing Balochi as, as this uh, mm. kind of identity that, that merges into these other nation states, you disrupt yeah. their definitions of themselves. But yeah. then by you using Desi as the way that you maybe like to de define yourself, you yeah. also maybe um, expose that none of those definitions actually make sense. Definitely. And um, something, another thing that kind of obscured that for me a lot more was, um, and it kind of feeds into what you're saying of like finding that, that kind of validation from another nation state. So when Oman owned Gwadarport mm. in Balochistan, um, they, um, they're, 
different accounts of how Baluchi people ended up in Oman, but there is a Baluchi presence there. Mm. Um, and so it's a combination of um, the recruitment of Baluchi people into um, the uh, army from uh, the Sultanate of Muscat mm. and Oman. Um, oh. And there's some accounts of uh, sl- um, enslavement of Baluchi people as well. Wow. And um, but because Baluchi people have been present in Oman for such a long time, they're considered Omani. Wow. And there's a Baluchi dress called the Gaga. And that's now considered, um, officially considered a traditional Omani dress. Wow. But you will never see the Kagga in any Pakistani diasporic space or even any kind of Pakistani spaces outside of Balochistan. So it's almost like the the geography into which Balochistan has been coerced Mm. is not the, the concept of national community that has been emerged yeah. into as compared with other nations that it's not geographically seen to be yeah. yeah. I think therefore actually I'm quite excited by this idea of Balochistan as a very disruptive notion then and Baluchi mm. sounds like this identity which kind of keeps yeah. the, 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 the idea of nation state on its toes um, yeah yeah. Which, which for me is, is why I was excited to explore this binary because whilst it's not applicable to, you know, a lot of people listening necessarily, I think it's, mm. it's, it's, an, it's a binary that helps us, I think, to think beyond essentializing our identities, which I, as I said before, I think as those those who come from, you know, migrant backgrounds or migrant mm. heritage or whatever you want to call it, sometimes yeah. do. And I, I think something that actually just came to my mind when you were speaking mm. is, you know, that how that reinforces all sorts of different violences. And I remember yeah. hearing about um, with the recent um, kind of solidarity protests that were taking place um, uh, due to the kind of occupation of Kashmir by yeah, um, yeah. Indian military recently um, hmm. at one of the protests that was, I suppose, meant to be in solidarity with Kashmiris. Um, you hmm. had some people who took like a huge Pakistan flag. Oh God, yeah. They were flying about a Pakistan flag. And hmm. I guess the reason that that's so violent and and helpful is that Mm. you are essentially uh you're not sort of there in solidarity with people but instead you're asserting this national identity over a people for whom the very violence they're experiencing is because of national identity being imposed on them yeah exactly and and i think that kind of external nationalist symbolic presence there that's not Kashmiri is just it's violent like you said and it's so oppressive and silencing Mm. because you're no longer you're kind of diverting attention away from that struggle and you're making about yourself and and it's almost like glorifying your own self for being supportive right right and And yeah absolutely mm. and I think the I think also that actually like for someone like the subcontinent where you know basically what we look at now is is the product of colonialism essentially in in many ways Mm, by which I mean that the nation state is a product of colonialism too Um, I think that all these examples um, Mm. and the but the way that they're sorry the way that all these examples are responded to by the state Mm. is is very revealing because the question I usually ask near the end of the uh, an episode is you know if this binary is false um, Mm. you know if you don't have if you don't have to be one or the other if you can be both then why does it exist what is the function and I guess Mm. in this case the function um I would suggest is to maintain those very coercive boundaries because they work for somebody. Yeah, for sure. I think it definitely, it works for Pakistan as a state Mm -hmm. and it probably also works. uh, I know this sounds, I don't want this to sound really harsh, but like in my mind, it also works for in Pakistani diasporic spaces to Mm -hmm. assert that Urdu and Punjabi centrism. Definitely. And I kind of see that as like fragility. In, in, of identity mm. where like if there's someone 
in front of you who's disrupting your own logic of who you are and you're refusing to accept it. That, that to me speaks of your own fragility. Yeah. Um, because I think to, 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 to have to acknowledge it, would yeah. to, or then you, you'd you have to take some actually material steps to say, oh, well, then, therefore it's not fair that we um, mm. almost like monopolize or, you know, disproportionately yeah. see the advantages and benefits of the resources of the state, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think to, to concede that, oh, there are these other identities which are just mm. as legitimate partners in this state. Exactly. You, yeah. Yeah, as you say, you would have to lose something. It, you'd have to lose something exactly so for me like in some ways it's I know this sounds really corny but it it brought me closer to Islam and and to Allah because it kind of you know there's that verse in the Quran that says we've made you from different tribes and nations Mm -hmm. so that you may know one another Mm. but when I actually when you when you think about it even within um post-colonial nations that's not really a a concept that's accepted (laughs) it's not practiced Mm. and um I just when my identity as a Pakistani person was completely dislodged it kind of was brought back together by Islam Mm. and you know we believe that like humans were created of dust Mm. to me like I'm I'm of this earth but I'm not from this earth Mm. and that's really reassuring to me that like other people's views of me and other people's views of marginalizing me and and their efforts to, or even, even, you know, that kind of state level oppression, not to reduce the severity of it. It's kind of reassuring to me that, you know, the, the kind of the ultimate entity that's Allah is oversees that. And and that's the, you know, the ultimate. Absolutely. I think that's really powerful because, but, and also because I think, at a time like now where mm. it almost seems impossible to think beyond the nation state to think yeah. you know, how could there's so because I, and I think you know on the one hand in a very legitimate way because you gain safety through belonging to a nation state right we have so mm. many people seeking asylum and seeking uh, citizenship and deprivation yeah. becomes this punitive measure this way that you dehumanize people um, exactly. so I understand why you know why it's so difficult to think beyond the logic of borders but but actually I agree with you that the only for me the only sort of reassuring or exciting um other form of identification i can see is mm. that of 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 muslim because muslim becomes this identity marker then that is like be, you don't it doesn't as you say it doesn't belong to any ethnicity mm. nationality or border but also ummah i think in its purest sense which is not a sense that i see you know played out at all <laughs> yeah. in the real yeah. world but is this sense of belonging that supersedes territory that supersedes language that supersedes Agreed. um ethnicity and so I don't know. On that basis, it's interesting because Pakistan, coming back to Pakistan, it it proposes that it is a Muslim state. Yeah. And almost within that, to me, there is an irony because what does it mean to be? You cannot. How can you? <laughs> can a state in of itself inherently mm. where you are b- making a boundary? Yeah. Is that you know? Islamic. So these are these are these are questions, and and we all obviously we know that also a lot of states that profess to be Muslim are, you know, very violent, coercive, exploitative, mm. etc. So, but I, I I'm I'm really glad that you you kind of um up that note uh, to end mm. on. Um, and yeah. I guess is there anything else that you you want to add before we we finish up on on in terms of you know who benefits from this and who who loses out from these kind of binary ways of thinking? I usually like to end on a concluding thought in terms of like, what is a better way to think about ourselves than this mm. particular binary? Um, mm. And I guess what I've heard from you today and what I will take forward, and you can also offer your own suggestion, is um, just that in my in my 
claim to want to belong to something or my desire for safety, I I guess I learned from this binary to not re-essentialize my identity into something else, mm. but to be okay with being two things or three things or more yeah. or nothing at all. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think also it's important to kind of confront our own practices of coloniality and our own internal racisms. Um, and to so that in asserting our own identity we're not rejecting another person mm. um yeah and and for me it always comes back to islam it's just that kind of the overarching reassurance that you're you know it's more than just the geopolitics of this earth absolutely <laughs> let's let's go beyond these genocidal cultures <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. I want to thank Hussein Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. Bye.